I'm Trisha, and welcome to Is It Recess Yet? Confessions of a Former Child Prodigy, a podcast about my years as a teenage concert violinist and my quest to evolve beyond that identity. Follow me on my journey, and along the way you'll get an insider's look into the classical music world and listen to conversations with innovative artists who are forging new and playful paths into creativity. So let's go, because I think I hear the recess bell. You're not supposed to create controversy, right? You're supposed to just sit there and behave well, not raise any issues, not cause problems, but there are problems, and they're there. My guest today is Sean Wang, heard here playing Nikos Golkota's Sonata for Solo Violin. Sean is a violinist, conductor, and music historian. American Record Guide has called him a brilliant violinist whose quality of playing is exceedingly high. Having performed at prominent venues in North America, East Asia, and Europe, he currently teaches at the Longy School of Music as chair of the strings department and director of orchestra. He has worked as violinist-in-residence with the Guild of Composers in New York City, concertmaster with Grammy-nominated early music group Ars Lyrica Houston, interim director of Bach Society Houston, and he is the founder-director of the New York-based East-West Music. Sean studied at the Curtis Institute of Music, where he received a Bachelor of Music in Violin Performance, the Juilliard School, where he received a Master of Music in Conducting, and Stanford University, where he received a joint PhD in Musicology and Humanities. I started playing when I was three years old. Both my parents were piano teachers. My father actually founded a rather important music program, it's a high school program in Taiwan. So I've been listening to music all my life, basically. uh, When I was three, my mother started teaching me. And um, now I'm still a pianist. She started me on piano. And um, I didn't switch to violin until I was six years old. I wasn't very good at it. Certainly not a prodigy, you know. I think I'm quite talented in music, but when I first started, I didn't sound very good. In fact, um, my violin teacher told my mother, you know, he was uh, rather disturbed that I was making such an ugly sound on the violin. So <laughs> that's why he said to my mother, how can your son make such an ugly sound on the violin? That's remarkable. So that was when I was six years old. <laughs> Then I quit playing for about a year because of health issues and uh, restarted basically from scratch again when I was in third grade. Yeah, then I've been playing violin ever since. I think I got better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be fair, one of the jokes I like to make is like, you know that your parents love you if you play the violin and they endure it because there's so many years before the violin sounds any good. <laughs> like if you're well, a pianist yeah. from the first lesson, you can make a nice sound and you can make play a tune, but the violin is so horrible for so long. <laughs> yep, exactly. And when did you come to America from Taiwan? I came here when I was 13 years old. 
Um, and that was after winning first prize of the national violin competition. It was actually a rather arduous process to go abroad to study because of um, mandatory um, military service that uh, all the boys had to go through. And in order to skip that, not that I, you know, into the competition and, 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 and um, went abroad in order to skip that part of um, life, but um, in order to go abroad, in order to be official, one has to win the top three prizes, one of the top three prizes of the national competition, and then go through this government administered examination. And once you pass it, you can go abroad to study officially. Otherwise, you are sort of illegitimate as far as the Taiwanese government is concerned. There's something similar to that in South Korea, too, with the military, uh, mandatory military service. And I know that that also is something, you know, you have to win. It's a lot of pressure. You have to win one of the top prizes in order to be, I guess, exempted from, from that. Sounds like it's a similar system in Taiwan. Right. And so what happened was my mother wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, that I would win one of the <laughs> top prizes. I won first, by the way. But before that, she actually uh, made me quit school for a year. I did nothing but practice and um, <clears throat> really prepare for it well. It was sort of a gamble, you know, because I, I can't imagine myself taking my daughter out of school for a year just so that she can practice and prepare for a competition. Do you feel like that was, I mean, the mandatory military service is a, is a major consideration, so... From your mother's standpoint, do you feel like she was really trying to do something for your future to try to protect you? or? Yeah, well, not to protect me from the military service, but simply to let me advance as a musician. I mean, Taiwan back then was not as developed musically as it is today. Um, you know, they have a good musical climate right now. But back then, it was still rather provincial on many levels. So in order to go far, one cannot just stay there. It was necessary to go abroad. So she realized that. And um, my father actually was sort of against uh, the whole idea of me going to a different country to study because, you know, as I said earlier, he founded a music program himself, and he knew how difficult it was to be a musician. And he didn't want me to go down that path. But I guess I had enough talent and enough conviction when I was young. Uh, he saw that, so he well, grudgingly allowed me to uh, go through that process and be a musician. But for a long time, he was against it. So even at age 13, when this was going on and you were taken out of school for a year for the purpose of, you know, preparing yourself for a life in music and to study abroad, do you have a clear memory that this was something you really wanted to do? I mean, you came up in a musical family, so I'm curious about your feelings about it at that time. Oh, I love music. Absolutely. That was what my whole life was about. Uh, <clears throat> thinking back, you know, my childhood was really filled with music of Beethoven, Haydn, Mozart, you know, Mendelssohn. 
um, yes, that, that was always what I really wanted to do. And in a way, it was almost like an escape from real life. I'm this classical music, uh, I guess bubble is not the best way to describe it, but there's this whole world there where I can sort of, um, you know, hide myself in and be comfortable. Going abroad was sort of like this idea of realizing that uh, the dream that I always had, which was really wonderful. So I always knew that I would be a musician one day. It was always what I wanted to do. What was performing like for you when you were a kid? Do you remember what that competition was like and did you enjoy it? I remember being very nervous. Mm -hmm. And um, did I enjoy it? Yes, of course I enjoyed it. I enjoyed playing for people a lot, but I wouldn't call myself, you know, one of those naturally, uh, no, I, I'm a reserved person. I don't talk very much, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, and when I play, of course, I try my best to express myself. But when I was young, that actually didn't come naturally. Part of that had to do with the way I was brought up. It was a cultural, cultural um, pressure in a way. You know, I mean, you are supposed to just stay quiet and listen to adults and not speak so much. And some of that, I guess, way of life affected my playing to a certain degree, which put me at a disadvantage in some ways, because then I felt that I wasn't able to freely express myself, or rather I wasn't supposed to fully express myself. That's really interesting because I think that I, I've experienced that too and it's something that just anecdotally comes up when I have conversations with folks of East Asian in particular descent who are in the performing arts. Yeah. Um, I too was raised to be reserved and quiet and and also I believe that I, I'm curious how it is for you, but I believe that I have culturally been hmm, that I'm more comfortable in some ways with processing the world non-verbally uh -huh. because there's just a lot more that's communicated not verbally in my Korean culture than say in American culture. There's mm -hmm. such a premium put on being extroverted and very verbal and um, kind of a little bit loud, to be honest. <laughs> right. Um, is that something that you've experienced too when you try to I guess assimilate is the word I'm looking for. What are your experiences of assimilation? That took a while. I guess I'm still trying to assimilate after being here for 32 years. I came by myself to the States. I was alone. I've been alone since I was, well, was 13 years old and until I got married, of course. But um, trying to assimilate was a non-issue in that I didn't even think about it. Now that I naturally blended in, I did not, but I didn't feel that I was a real outlier of any sort. But of course that was my own perception. Others saw me differently, I'm pretty sure. And thinking back, I really behaved quite differently. When I first came, there was also this cultural divide that I experienced. 
uh, and in terms of music making, uh, let, let me put it this way. I had a trio in high school. It was me and two, uh, you know, one American boy and one American girl, both very nice. They talked a lot, they laughed a lot. I, on the other hand, was always quiet. Um, but then, you know, like two weeks into um, the semester, I um, got um, <clears throat> called to the um, coach's office. And she asked me, why are you being snobbish? Why are you uh, almost disrespectful to your trio mates? I said, well, what, what, what are you talking about? No, I, I, I just, I try my best to do my work. I'm quiet. I don't say very much. And plus, my English wasn't very good. I had like 10 words back then. And, um, but that, that quietness was misunderstood, was misinterpreted. And it was taken as just an act of defiance almost. So, um, and that was something I actually experienced quite a bit growing up without knowing what I was doing because there was no parental guidance really. I was on my own. So that was sort of a unique struggle that I had, I guess. Yeah, a lot of what you're saying resonates with me because I think um, I, I'm American born, but even still, I feel that I struggle with um, a certain amount of code switching, that mm -hmm. I feel I'm one way with my family, I'm one way in different environments. And that's, to be fair, what we all do. We have slightly different personas, whatever environment we're in. But that seems like that would have been extremely um, challenging, especially for somebody so young. And what you describe, like, you know, leaving home alone at such a young age, that's pretty common also, I think, in East Asian families, especially of a certain generation. As you said, the same thing was true in Korea, that in order to um, to fulfill perhaps your full potential, it was kind of given that you would study abroad. Uh -huh. um, can you talk a little bit more about how, as you said, you, you continue to try to assimilate, but um, are there how how have you managed that that difference? How have you managed to um, engage in the culture that you're a part of here in America, but still maintain the sort of culture that you're actually that you're from, the culture of your homeland? Yeah. Again, I think I matured slowly. Mm -hmm. so for years and years, I wasn't aware of of these cultural differences. I continued to act um, my own way. And um, if others disagree with me, I just sort of brushed it off. I didn't know that, um, you know, in this society, one is really um, not judged, but one is um, assessed by how uh, he or she talks, by how the person acts, you know? And a lot of times, uh, the initial impression is everything. The first 10, 20 seconds that can form a, someone's impression of somebody, sometimes permanently. And again, without knowing that, because in, in Asian societies, uh, things work slightly different. You know? But here, um, I guess to put it mildly, I didn't always create a good first impression. And um, so, for the longest time, I was wondering, no, why, why don't people like me? Why am I so unpopular, even uh, among my, my uh, schoolmates? 
and um, my teachers. So that was a bit of a struggle. And it wasn't until much later, I would say 10, 15 years later, when I was in my 20s, approaching 30, that I started to realize that, you know, maybe I've been doing the wrong stuff. I don't want to say wrong because we're talking about cultural difference, right? There's no right or wrong. But um, it wasn't until then that I started to understand that the cultural difference between my culture and, and, and this culture is much bigger than I wanted to admit myself. Yeah, and I would say, at least for me, what I found is, um, again, a lot of what you're saying, I, I really, you know, I feel um, sort of resonance with. Because I, too, have been, again, I'm American-born, so our experiences are slightly different, and I'm also female, so there's also differences. But I have felt that um, it's been only fairly recently that I think that these conversations around implicit bias that Asians experience in white culture have mm. even, um, whatever language there's been to talk about these things, at least for me, has been... Um, fairly recent a uh, fairly recent discovery for me like uh-huh. I think I've always a lot of what you're describing is sort of reminding me of some of my experiences of like not really knowing what was going on but sensing somehow that that things weren't connecting in the same ways and if I'm going to be really blunt I feel like as an American-born Asian I was definitely indoctrinated in the idea that um frankly what i think of the as the myth of american meritocracy that everything is truly equal right mm-hmm. um and so if that's the case then what i'm experiencing is just a deficiency on my part but now uh-huh. with more conversations and more language with which we can talk about these things uh-huh. it's becoming clear that you know microaggressions is a thing and implicit bias again you and i live in asian bodies and the second we show up in our asian bodies we uh-huh. are subjected to all kinds of evaluations right um and i think that especially when it comes to you know again asian is a very imperfect container because it's like so many people contained within that but let's say east asians for example there's a perception that we are included and i think that we are included to some extent but we're really not included completely that's been my experience is that always been my experience right Microaggression, I mean, it's a thing. And I experience a lot of that, even now, on a daily basis sometimes. Yeah, for me, yeah, for me too. Right. Could you talk a little bit, you wear so many different hats musically, if we can turn for a second towards your towards your career as a musician um you're an instrumentalist you're a conductor you're a scholar you're an administrator what led you to explore so many different facets of a life within classical music this actually started when i was in elementary school now the repertoire that i was most fascinated by wasn't the violin repertoire i listened to a lot of symphonies and my Parents were piano teachers, so, you know, day and night, there were students um, in the living room playing Beethoven's Sonata, Schubert, Brahms, Schumann. So 
to me, violin and other music, that's just one channel for expressing music. So to me, it sort of was a natural thing to do. I mean, to, to, to sort of, it's a little hard to describe because it's not like I'm trying to wear as many hats as I can, you know. And, uh, no, that was never the purpose, but I simply love uh, a, a wide variety of repertoire. Beethoven symphonies, you know, and later I discovered Stravinsky, and then uh, later on in life there was uh, this whole early music repertoire. So I just got fascinated, and when I got fascinated, I wanted to try myself and see if I could make things work. So that was what led to all these different degrees and different majors. Yeah, so that's the that's the basis. It's not like I got bored with any one of them in particular. You know, I just enjoy them all. But that created a problem. And again, it's something I didn't really realize until uh, I was in my late 20s. And that is, one can really just specialize in one thing. There's a social pressure. You know how specialists are highly valued by this society. And being a Renaissance man is, you know, when people say that, you take it as a compliment to a certain extent, but um, you know, people don't like generalists. So that, that, that's been an issue for me. You know, what am I? Do I want to be a specialist? Am I a generalist? Can I do everything well? Can I only do a few things well? Can I do nothing well? You know, and all these have nothing to do with how I feel as a musician, but uh, has to do with how others uh, see me. You're both a performer and a scholar. Um, can you talk about what it's like to have studied in conservatories and universities? Um, how does your skills in both, like how does your work as a scholar inform your performing life and vice versa? Yeah, oh, the two are very much linked. And um, <clears throat> I guess the best example, the latest example would be you know, my approach to violin playing um, after I studied musicology, you know, how, how when you write, you're always trying to be as precise and concise as possible with your words, right? Being economical is uh, a virtue when you write. And somehow that mindset got transferred to my violin playing. I, I became very, very picky with little details, with my intonation, with rhythm, with articulation, you know. Before when I was in, um, in college, that was before I studied anything academic, I was very much a free spirit. But uh, that aspect of my personality of being a free spirit didn't go very well because I wasn't about precision. But that changed after my academic studies. So that is, to me personally, the, the, the biggest advantage of uh, you know having studied something challenging and rigorous as a scholar. Do you find that that precision that you now or that you came to approach your your instrumental life after mm -hmm. delving into scholarship, do you yeah. think that's a result of 
looking at music and knowing more about how music is put together that you became more exacting? What do you think that came from? Well, it came certainly from from uh, knowing more. And of course, the more you know, the more humble you are. Before I used to think, you know, early Beethoven sonatas, uh, early Beethoven sonata is just so simple. Your notes and a lot of them you can just play in the first position and you, you know, just make it sound good and that's that. <laughs> that of course changed after knowing more about the historical background, you know, more knowledge in performance practice I gained from studying and reading. Uh, there was a period, it wasn't that long ago either, maybe 10, 15 years ago, uh, when I just found myself unable to play much. I was scared to play stuff. I was scared of doing something wrong, you know, something that can be musically offensive. So I became hypersensitive and hypercritical of my own playing. Uh, but eventually I was able to get over that and grew from that experience. How did you find your way out of that moment where you kind of got scared, of, as you said, scared of playing? Like I was in a straight jacket the whole time. And what if I put an accent there? There's not supposed to be an accent. And according to this uh, Urtex edition, that's in A sharp, not in A flat, you know? And playing was sort of like walking on thin ice. It was a very bizarre feeling. Uh, but after, after coming out of that, there was so much freedom in my uh, violin playing and also in my conducting. At the same time, I uh, managed to still stay with the composer's intention as much as possible. Um, this is the freedom one gains from knowing more, but there is a stage or several stages that one needs to go through in order to get to that place. There are players that are, you know, just naturally musical. Um, when you ask them about, you know, how, how are you able to do this and that, how can you play so explicitly, they can really describe what they do uh, with words. With me, I think I'm a natural player too. But knowing more helps me make better decisions and it helps me teach in that I now have the ability, I hope, I think, to verbalize musical ideas, some of which can, of course, be very abstract. So being able to verbalize, being able to explain difficult concepts clearly and precisely to my students, that, that's certainly a, a big plus. So if we can return back to what you said about how you feel like the breadth of the knowledge you have has ironically made you feel a little bit like you're perceived as a generalist. Uh -huh. It seems, I find that interesting because it seems to me like, at least in academia, there's more and more demand for people who can do multiple things. Yes. Because uh, there are fewer positions and fewer, frankly, just financial lines that are open for hiring. Right. Um, but that has that not been the case for you? With my current job, I wear multiple hats. I'm 
orchestra conductor. Uh, I'm the department chair. I am uh, you know, a member of the violin faculty. I recruit. I do a lot of things. So, yes, being a generalist is good in that it helps you find more opportunities because schools want to save money. At the same time, there are always people that are a little suspicious of generalists, right? Um, can he really do this and that? And can he really conduct well and still be able to play Bartok and make it sound like Bartok? You know, there are questions like that. I had a trio with a uh, um, wonderful clarinetist Chad Burrow and pianist Amy Chang. They both teach at the University of Michigan. So we have a clarinet trio that was formed in 2005. And when we started playing together, I was still a student of musicology trying to finish my degree. And I remember went to this um, clarinet symposium in the Midwest. We play a concert. We did Bartok's uh, Contrast and uh, a few other very challenging pieces for uh, Clarinet Trio. And um, <clears throat> before the performance, uh, a student approached the clarinetist. And he was genuinely, uh, genuinely curious whether or not this violinist in the group can play the Bartok correctly. And I thought, how can you do it? He's a musicologist, and musicologists are not supposed to play stuff like this, you know. <laughs> and I, I took that both as a compliment and as an insult to a certain extent. So there's always that, that suspicion one needs to overcome being a generalist. What was life like for you in the years after you finished school? Did you find that your career sort of unfolded in an organic way or was there any kind of gestational period? What was it yeah. like after school for you? It actually was rather challenging. I, I had many different majors. In college, I was a biology major. Then for my master's degree, the Juilliard School, I was a conducting major. Then I switched to musicology for my doctorate. So what happened was, you know, I guess I was a little stubborn and didn't believe in this idea of, you know, you have to choose between career and family. You can only have one, not both, you know. Being as defiant as I've always been, I said, no, you know, I'm going to face this challenge. I'm going to show the world that it's possible to have both. I was naive, of course. It turned out to be way more difficult than I anticipated. So what happened was I moved with my wife to Tennessee, a wonderful place. We lived in Nashville for four years where she studied uh, medicine at Vanderbilt University. So there um, I tried my best to adapt. <clears throat> now there's a huge country music scene in Nashville, of course, and there were uh, studio like, session musicians there, wonderful players, wonderful people. So I, I joined that crowd. I had a great time making recordings for country music singers. I was playing the background for them. And the music was something that I wasn't terribly familiar with, but it wasn't terribly difficult, and I was able to learn quickly. So there I adapted, and I also was invited to teach as a lecturer at Vanderbilt. Wonderful opportunity. So I did that. I taught some music history because I studied music history. Then my wife got matched to 
Houston's MD Anderson Cancer Center for her residency. Of course, she had to go, right? But I went with her, started from zero yet again. And I was fortunate to have this two-year appointment at the University of Houston where I taught violin. And in Houston, uh, people probably know this, but there is a thriving early music scene. And uh, I guess I went there the right time. I was able to play with this group called Ars Lyrica Houston. It was nominated for a Grammy a few years ago. I was able to perform with them a lot, meaning I had to pick up real violin and somehow switch from A equals 440 down to A uh, to 415. So that took a few months to, to, to get used to. <laughs> and then I became the director of this nonprofit organization called Bach Society Houston. Did a job for a year. And again, I adapted. I did what was necessary to blend in in the music uh, scene where I was. Um, then I moved back to New York, got a job at the Long School in Boston, and um, they needed a conductor as soon as I got hired. So um, I became a conductor of the school orchestra. So again, I adapted. So that's the advantage of being a generalist, I think, is that you are able to contribute um, and to, you know, just make a meaningful career out of, um, out of necessities, almost. You and I have talked a little bit about our experiences of being Asian musicians in America yeah. today and also a little bit prior to our conversation here now. Um, can you talk a little bit about a time in your professional life when you became very aware of your race? Yes. That did not happen until I became a professional, when I started teaching and when I started playing in public on a frequent basis. That didn't happen until I was in my early 30s. I had been a professional student. And um, immediately, maybe it was because of where I was, you know, being Asian, um, automatically you are a foreigner. And uh, there's this idea that, now this is very subjective and I have no way of proving this. Being a musician is just tough regardless of race, right? Um, but um, being an Asian, it's easy to just say, oh, I didn't get that job because I'm Asian. Oh, they don't like my playing because I'm Asian. It's easy to kind of fall into that trap. And it's very possible that what I, what I experienced had nothing to do with race. The, the more uh, negative things that I experienced was not uh, racial. But one can help but feeling that Constantly, there is this idea that I look different and I speak with an accent. And uh, in America, this is actually not as big a problem compared to certain parts of Europe where they just simply assume that Asians cannot really play Beethoven correctly. Or Mozart is just not in the right spirit. And um, here, let's so, but I don't always enjoy the fact that good Asian musicians, or let's say competent Asian musicians are frequently viewed as some sort of 
you know, uh, curiosity. This is, uh, we are admired for our showmanship, but not so much our musicianship, if you know what I mean. There is also constantly this microaggression. Uh, for example, one time after a nice performance, I was approached by, I think, a lawyer. And he automatically just, you know, he congratulated me. He was being very nice. And he said, you know, um, so let me guess, your mother made you play violin and she's been collecting all the reviews and, you know, uh, she's been just next to you holding the violin for you right? while you just practice. I said, no, that's not the case. But so there's that, that stereotype. There's that um, preconception that I'm not always comfortable with. Yeah, I've had almost an identical experience where more than once I've had people come up to me after concerts and say, because now there's this term, of course, tiger mom, and they would say, oh, so you have a tiger mom, don't you? And I would insist that I don't. And then they would insist that I must, (laughs) because that's the only explanation. And absolutely, that's a microaggression. And I think a lot of people don't understand how even though on the surface of it, as you said too, like when you started telling that story, you said he was very nice, he didn't mean Mm -hmm. anything. Microaggressions as we know them, as they're defined, is that they're not Mm ill-intentioned, but what they do is they continue to other us, right? They make, they they have to have some kind of explanation for um, our, what we are able to do. Um, so I, I definitely have had that experience. Mm -hmm. So as we've been discussing, you know, there's an overwhelming number of East Asians who participate in XL in classical music. Um, however, we still see an underrepresentation of Asians in positions of executive power, Mm -hmm. um, especially on the podium and at the highest levels of institutional influence. Um, I feel this discrepancy is also something we see in the dominant culture at large. Um, And it just, it's interesting, it's at the macro and micro level when it comes to classical music, I think. Um, I think the classical music culture, as you said, yes, it is, it is even more blatant in Europe, but it's pretty implicit even in America. It's a pretty Mm -hmm. conservative culture. There is this belief that unless you, um, you know, that there's the elevation of white Western music, and you must be white and Western in order to play it properly, right? Yes. So that's why I'm interested in having conversations like this with you. I'm really grateful that you um, are sitting down with me today about what it's like to be an Asian in America. Um, Do you experience some of these discrepancies that I'm describing? And if you do, how do you manage those? I'm especially curious because you do have, I mean, you you are extraordinarily um, credentialed and clearly very intellectually capable, have high scholarship, you have all these degrees from all these fancy places, right? How do you manage, if you feel that gap, how do you manage it for yourself? It is difficult to say the least. There is a bamboo ceiling, right? And um, as you said on the podium, that's especially problematic. We have great Asian concert masters in this country. Uh, how many Asian maestros do you see on the podium? Really, not that many. And does that really mean that Asian conductors are simply less capable than white conductors? No, that's certainly not the case. 
For me, I've been a nonprofit executive myself. I've been an administrator as well. And it just seems that in order to get to the same place as your white colleagues in Asia, you have to work almost twice as hard just to get to the same place. It's very slippery, these issues Mm -hmm. that we're talking about because of the implicit bias, because of the perpetual foreignness. All these things are, they're sort of buzzwords and they're imperfect vocabulary for what we're experiencing. They're something, but they're not quite sufficient, right? But I will say that um, what you just said about you somehow have to work twice as hard to be given like even the sort of entry-level consideration. I've heard on this very podcast, I've I've had conversations with a Hmong writer, Maider Vang, said the same thing in her in her interview. And she's an extraordinary poet and writer. And she Mm -hmm. that was she said that verbatim. She said, I learned early on that I have to be twice as good to be Uh even given not even a place at the table, but to be given a chance. I guess what I'm saying is like, I think we've all experienced that on some level. The difficulty is how do we talk about those things when it it feels so um, slippery and difficult to pin down. Right. It's hard to be objective. And there's no data to back me up. Uh, I'm also pretty certain that this bias is there against Asian musicians. Um, But as much as I can, I don't play the race card. In fact, I almost never do. And and I suppose being Asian and with the way I was brought up, being resilient is a good thing. And being able to cope and being able to overcome difficulties without complaining is um, really, it's a wonderful thing if you can manage to pull it off. So that has always been my goal. Again, we're getting into some very difficult topic here. Um, But it does exist. It exists not only in music, not only in classical music, of course, but uh, even with my daughter, she's nine years old. She attends a public school in in, uh, New York State, and she experiences that without knowing explicitly that she is facing that kind of uh, kind of issue. We are, of course, talking during the COVID-19 pandemic, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of anxiety for everyone as we face a really uncertain future, especially for performing artists. A lot of the ways in which we make a living are no longer available to us in the immediate future because we can't gather in large groups. Mm-hmm. Um, It seems like it's more important than ever to cultivate flexibility as we consider our careers and also the career possibilities for our students. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the necessity, challenges, and also the fulfillment you've found from having a multifaceted career yourself? And are you finding yourself considering new possibilities that you might not have considered before COVID? Yes, as a matter of fact, I think about this question almost daily because of what we are facing. It's really hard to tell what uh, classical music is going to be like after this pandemic is over. You're going to have emptier concert halls for sure. And I think what people are exploring these days is online presence. Of course, as teachers, we all teach online now. 
uh, and there are also performances that are offered online, some are live, some are put together, but I think that's going to be the next big medium. I have no idea what's going to, if there ever is going to be like an online track for performers, you know what I mean? But I'd be surprised if, if nothing new comes out of this dramatic experience. So you work in academia, as do I, and you have had a substantial history um, in academia, as we've talked a little bit about, um, working in uh, various higher education institutions um, in lots of different capacities. Um, do you think that the priorities have changed for the students you're working with now who are coming up in classical music as compared to when we were going through school? Most definitely. When I was in school, it was all about playing well. That was thing number one. Now, one needs to, I don't know what the best way is to say this, but one needs to be packaged right in order to get recognition. In a way, being able to play well is like a prerequisite. And after you have achieved that, you need to know how to sell yourself. This is putting it very crassly. But it's also um, the way it is these days. One needs to have a real online presence with a good website. Uh, the resume needs to look just right. And sometimes, you know, the way you talk, the way you behave, and how you look, how you your hairdo, they all matter. A performer, a classical musician, is it's a package. Not that it wasn't a package in the past, but these days, how one looks and acts is sometimes more important than how the person plays. And that to me is fascinating. It's slightly problematic, wouldn't you say? When, um, <laughs> when real musicianship is not as prized as it used to be just two, three decades ago. But that's the trend these days, I feel. I think a lot of the things that I feel about the classical music culture are things that I, I wish were talked about more. Mm -hmm. Things like mental health issues and failure, especially yeah. as these pertain to musicians of Asian descent, as we've kind of touched upon. When you come from East Asian cultures, the priorities can be a little bit different in terms mm -hmm. of communication and, and how we present in the world. Um, yes part of this podcast is because I want to talk about some of the things we've talked about. Race, for example, is one of them. Um, mm -hmm. Mental health issues. Also, the importance um, of failure. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of that comes from my own experiences, having come up and struggled with feeling like these are things that I couldn't talk about. Are there uh -huh. things that you wish we could talk more about in conversations generally, but especially, again, as an educator and somebody who is an active participant in the classical music culture. Yes. I say this because I really believe in it, not because I want to sound negative or anything. But these days, so much focus is on making the student feel good. The student needs to be, of course, encouraged. But at times, it's healthy to not feel that great. It's healthy to not feel all that comfortable when you play. It's healthy to know that you're actually 
you know, not where you can be in terms of playing and that your musicianship can grow even further. I mean, a lot of these things are easily taken as criticism, but I just deeply feel that a lot of musical expression, even something as basic as fundamental as that, can grow only out of, uh, I don't want to say pain, that's such a 19th century word, right? But uh, sometimes what is perceived as a negative experience can be uh, nurturing in its own way. So I think that's one area that a lot of students can probably you know, learn something from. And we, we tend to insulate our students from negative experience these days. But some exposure to that, I think, is definitely a good thing. You talked earlier on about being a little bit of a free spirit at one point in your mm-hmm. life, musically, right. and yeah. how that's kind of evolved. Uh-huh. Um, at this moment in time in your career, in your musicianship, do you feel that you do things to cultivate what I like to call a creative courage? Do you mm. actively seek out um, taking creative risks? And if you do, do you ever feel scared? And if you do feel scared, how do you overcome and manage those fears? So basically, like, how are you moving yourself forward as an artist? Because it sounds like you've done so many different things and you have very often followed your curiosities. What are you curious about now that you're following? I am still improving as a violinist. I'm still improving as a musician. And I'm not just saying this to sound, uh, you know, humble or anything, but um, daily I try to challenge myself. Can I make that phrase more beautiful? Can I play more in tune? Can I develop? a better sound and every day every single day i get frustrated every single day i am pretty unhappy with what i do and again these are things i don't talk about they're deeply personal and thank you for providing this platform because i feel that i can actually speak freely about these issues that some musicians may find uh, agreeable or pertinent but Yes, in terms of feeling scared, yeah, of course there are always, for example, musical decisions. Every time before I do something, maybe because of the way I was taught, you know, you're supposed to do Beethoven a certain way, and Schumann's done uh, in a particular style. And when you try to break out of uh, those barriers, it's scary. Am I really stepping out of bounds? Am I going against tradition? And these days, for me, you know, being able to play a piece so that it sounds refreshing to the ear, particularly if I can make it uh, sound like a new piece that was just composed, you know, uh, two months ago. If one is able to achieve that, it's certainly a big success. And that, that takes a lot. There are a lot of European musicians, especially Europeans these days, they, they do take risks, dramatic risks. They are able to transform a, you know, a well-known piece like the Beethoven Violin Concerto into something that's almost uh, unrecognizable. And I admire courage like that. And I wish I had more motivation to go down the same path. 
that's a challenge. It's a daily challenge for me. In what ways is your career what you thought it would be, and in what ways is it not? Frankly, I didn't ever know what my career was going to be. I knew I was going to be a musician, but unlike a lot of people, I didn't know if I was going to be a conductor or if I was going to be an orchestral player or a chamber musician or teacher. And uh, now I'm sort of doing a lot of things. I'm, I'm, I'm all of them in one. You can call that a lack of focus. But to me, it's wonderful to be able to experience different sub areas of music, you know, music making. Like with my job, I can be conducting the orchestra for three hours. And after that, I can be in a rehearsal with wonderful chamber musicians making music together on a completely different repertoire. So I, no, I did not have a fixed career in mind. I never had one. For years and years, I tried to search for one. Now I am who I am. I am sure that, you know, if we talk again in five years, I might be doing something completely different, but it's still going to be music related. I've been really struck by how you've talked about the many different turns your career has taken. And um, you mentioned that when you were living in Nashville that you uh, played some American folk music. Do you mm -hmm. have any interests in music of, um, of Taiwan, of music of other, other countries beyond the sort of Western classical canon? I actually founded a nonprofit called East West Music. Uh, until um, three months ago, it was called the New York Intercultural Music Society. And what uh, I do with the nonprofit is that I try to commission new music for both Western and Eastern instruments. And I make recordings. For example, I just did a piece by a wonderful composer, Donald Womack, who's based in Honolulu. He specializes in writing for Asian instruments. So I asked him to write a piece for violin and guzheng, which is a Chinese zither called Splashed Ink. So that's the kind of music I'm exploring a lot these days. Back in December, I did a wonderful program for Baroque uh, music from both Western, the Western tradition and uh, Turkish tradition. And we were able to combine both cultures into one program. So that, that was really exciting for me. It's my hope that this podcast would be the kind of resource that I wished had existed when I was younger and growing mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to your younger self to help him on his journey? Advice to my younger self. Give me a minute. This can be hard. This is going to sound funny, but it's a practical advice. And this has to do with uh, perception rather than what, um, what one does artistically and musically. But with what we do as musicians, as artists, uh, of course it's great that, um, you know, if we have a focus, an artistic focus, of course, that's wonderful. But one also has to think about how, um, how one is perceived by others, because a lot of what we do is it's out there for public consumption, right? If you are just hiding in your basement, 
playing whatever music wonderfully. You're just playing for yourself. You're not sharing that with the world. But in order to have, um, I guess what I can say is that one needs to have an artistic identity. And that is very, very crucial. And these days, it's even more important to have something that is unique about your artistry. It's good to have tradition. It's good to know uh, about tradition, but it's also very important to break away from that. As for how far you want to go, that's of course, uh, sometimes it's not even up to you, but there needs to be a uniqueness, not needs to be there, not for the sake of having a uniqueness. That's not what I'm talking about. One really needs to have an artistic identity that others can, can easily perceive. That's why I would say to my younger self. A lot of what you talk about is very validating for me because mm -hmm. it's a lot of the things that I've struggled with. Slowly having these conversations with more Asians in general, but Asian artists, we all struggle with this feeling that something's not right. <laughs> something's not right. right. Um, our ability to converse about it is limited because number one, it's difficult to talk about it, and number two, we don't fully have the language to talk about it. You know, the vocabulary is not there. I really right. meant it like I feel like only really in the last maybe year or two have I even started to know what to call the things that I've experienced. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I did this conversation online for, um, you know, with some Asian artists. But afterwards, I really felt kind of a vulnerability hangover and a little bit nervous that I had said all these things, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I think that's just more reason for us to talk about it. We are nervous for a reason because because there hasn't been spaces to talk about it, number one, and number two, um, it doesn't feel safe to talk about it. And that's why I think it's important for us to talk about it. Does that make sense? Like we need to create those spaces. Yeah. And that's why I think what you are doing is very important. It's never comfortable. But circling back to our, our upbringing, we are not supposed to create controversy, right? We are supposed to just sit there and behave well, not raise any issues, not cause problems, but there are problems and they are there. I really appreciate how transparent you've been today. Yeah, thank you for providing these opportunities. Absolutely. And I, like, we don't talk about it because we're afraid of the system. But like you said, there are problems with the system, so we need to talk about it. So it's a, exactly. it's a, you know, all of us that are having these experiences, the more we support each other, the the more we can sort of um, change things, hopefully. Right. I'm in total agreement. Thank you to today's guest, Sean Wang. Heard here playing Tempo de Blues from Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. Visit my blog, isitrecessyet.com, to learn more ways to cultivate your creative courage and to subscribe to my mailing list. 
If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Is It Recess Yet on Apple Podcasts and iTunes and share it with a friend or write a review and rate this podcast to help build the Is It Recess Yet community and to find like-minded listeners. Thank you so much for listening. Be well and see you next time.